Welcome to this inaugural edition of The Word is Resistance, a podcast where we'll explore what our sacred texts have to teach us about living, surviving, even thriving in the context of empire, tyranny, violence, and repression, the times in which we are living today. What do our sacred stories have to teach us as white folks about our role in resistance, in showing up, and in liberation? My name is Reverend Ann Dunlap. I'm a UCC pastor doing community ministry for racial justice and solidarity here in Denver, Colorado. And I also coordinate faith work for showing up for racial justice or surge nationally. This podcast is a project of surge and surge faith. I'm honored to be with you wherever you are listening to this right now. I happen to be standing here in my friend's backyard recording studio surrounded by chickens who were chasing me as I walked through the yard in a still fallow winter garden. You can learn more about me at my website, fiercerevremedies.com, but for now, let me tell you I'm a pastor. I'm an activist and organizer, and I'm also an herbal warrior, which means as we get started here together today, I want to give thanks to God, to the divine who created the heavens and the earth, who gave us breath, who fills our bones with fire, who dreamed us up in the water of the womb, and who grounds and sustains and nourishes us from the soil. Wherever you are, take a breath and feel all the elements in you and around you, the divine within you and around you. Take a breath and thank the ancestors Take a breath and acknowledge the indigenous people who belong to the land where you dwell. Here, that would be the Cheyenne and Arapaho, and to them I give thanks. Take a breath and another. Amen. So what's up with this podcast, The Word is Resistance? I called this the inaugural edition because it's the very first one, obviously, and because we are launching this intentionally in the lead up to the January 20th inauguration of blatant tyranny and white supremacy. We are living in times that frighten us. Many of us as white folk have woken up in the last couple of years to the reality that people of color have been telling us is the truth of who we are as a country. They've been telling us for a long time, white supremacy, class division, xenophobia, misogyny, ableism, homophobia, transphobia, all the systemic oppressions held in place through violence and benign neglect. This is who we are. And we remember it is not all that we are. So at Surge, we've been asking, what tools, what stories are going to help us right now? What will help white 
people of faith and spirit gird up our courage to take bolder risks in collectively dismantling white supremacy and building up something new. So this podcast, The Word is Resistance, is one of those tools for Christian folk right now and soon down the road for Jewish folk as well. For Christians, we'll be using the Revised Common Lectionary and explore the week's text for tools of resistance and lift up a call to action you and your community can do together. Because here's the thing. Our traditions were made for these times. They come from these times. We have resources in our texts and our practices to help us right now. We can reclaim our stories and retell them to nourish our resistance against white supremacy and our work for collective liberation. Our word is a word of resistance. So whether you're a preacher looking for some sermon prep for the revolution or a person in the pew looking for a revolutionary word and not getting it, this podcast is for you. All right, so before we dive into this week's text, here are a few things you should know about how I approach interpretation of the Bible. I see the Bible as a collection of deeply sacred human wrestlings of a people who experienced oppression as the massive empires around them trampled through them time and time again. Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Rome. They are asking all kinds of questions in that context. What does it mean to be human? What's the best way to respond to oppression? Are we supposed to hate strangers and foreigners or love them? How do we get free? And how can we be suffering when we also testify that the divine loves us beyond all telling of it? They are asking these questions from Genesis to Revelation out of the context of the suffering of oppression under the heel of empire, and they don't always agree on the answers. And so it behooves me as a white person, citizen of yet another empire who benefits from that empire's trampling of other peoples, to understand that their context is very different from my own. So I bring that awareness when I read these stories, and I think that's crucial. If we white folk want to recover the power of our scripture as resistance stories, the power that white supremacy has stolen away from us and from our tradition, because we testify that the word has power to liberate, to free us all, and can speak even to me and to you. One more thing before we dive into the text. So you may notice already I'm pretty direct about naming things like white supremacy and empire, naming things for the way they are. So here's a couple of quick definitions I'm working from so you'll know. Racism is prejudice plus power, the collective power to make rules and laws and decisions about the lives and bodies of others. It's not about whether so-and-so was rude to me, but about who has collective power to oppressively impact entire classes of people. That's racism. Now, white supremacy and whiteness are a system of domination tightly linked to other supremacy systems like sexism, homophobia, colonization, capitalism, and patriarchy. Whiteness is a system of power 
a supremacy system that elevates the worth and dignity of certain lives over others. And I'm not talking about the KKK, actually, the most visible example, but a supremacy system running through all our institutions, including the church, and that harms all of us in different ways and keeps us all from being free. We have to name these things as preachers, proclaimers, prophets. We have to name the powers and principalities we are dealing with. The church in its whiteness has not been well served by being afraid to name things as they are. As Walter Brueggemann reminds us, naming things as they are breaks us out of the numbness the empire imposes and frees us to imagine alternative worlds, worlds that we can build together in a broad, multiracial, multi-everything movement towards freedom. friends, let's do this, shall we? Here's how it'll go. So each podcast, I'll open up with some introductory stuff to get us gathered in. Not quite as much as today, when it's important for you to know where I have my feet while I'm studying these texts with you. And maybe if y'all have some questions, then I'll try to answer them here as well. Then we'll spend some time looking at the Revised Common Lectionary texts. Sometimes we'll get to all of them, but not always. And then we'll finish up with a call to action and some final things to send us off into the week. Sound good? Still with me? Great. So today we're looking at the text for January 15th, week two of the Epiphany season. Our texts are Isaiah 49, 1 through 7, Psalm 40, 1 through 11, 1 Corinthians 1, 1 through 9, and John Chapter 1, 29-42, an odd reading the lectionary editors dropped into the middle of Matthew's narrative that takes us from Epiphany all the way to Lent. This will not be the last time we raise an eyebrow at the lectionary editor's interesting choices. Now we also want to be aware, as we're preparing, that we're looking ahead into this week of January 15th, from the Martin Luther King Jr. holiday on Monday, to the inauguration and its, and its attendant mass demonstrations against it all weekend. So with that in mind, I want to focus particularly today on Isaiah and John. Isaiah. So this reading from the prophet is identified as the second of four servant songs, a servant of the one God whose call is the restoration of Israel and to be a light to the nations, that is, non-Israelites, for justice. These songs come in the context of the Babylonian captivity when people have been deported into exile and Jerusalem has been destroyed. Sit with that a minute. Your people have been deported and your holy city, in many ways your heart, has been destroyed. The servant songs 
as part of the overall theme of redemption in this section of Isaiah, point to God's work to raise up a leader, a leader who will make things right, a leader who will restore Jerusalem, a leader who will faithfully bring forth justice as the first song, servant song says in chapter 42, and be a light not just for their own people, but to all people, a leader whom God knew and called before they were even born. In other words, a resistance leader against the oppression of empire. So who is this leader? We don't really know, really. I want to say this, though, that it isn't Jesus. Now, Christians like to look at passages like this from Isaiah and claim the prophets are talking about Jesus. But that interpretation erases the very real outcry of suffering in the historical moment that is demanding an urgent response from God. And what we see in these texts is God creator raising up a leader right now in the midst of their suffering, not 500 some years later, but right now. Now it's another thing entirely to be a part of the community of Jesus trying to make sense and meaning out of his life and death and ponder your sacred text and wonder if God raised Jesus up as a leader for the people in the midst of their suffering, just like God did for Israel in Egypt or Babylon. So let's just be clear from which side of history we're looking from as we read this text. So back to the question. Who's the servant? Maybe a figurehead? Maybe Cyrus, king of Syria, who defeated Babylon and allowed Israel to return to Jerusalem? Maybe somebody else entirely? Or maybe even the people of Israel themselves? After all, Israel is named. You are my servant, Israel. And we know that you in the prophets is often meant to speak to the whole people, not just one. So what if the leaders being raised up to resist Babylon and restore Israel are coming right up out of the people themselves? Not a king, not a figurehead, not a political party leader, but the very people themselves. My partner likes to remind me of this saying from her country, Solo el pueblo salva el pueblo. Only the people save the people. And here is your first resistance lesson from Isaiah today. God will raise up resistance in the face of oppression. And let's be clear, that resistance is going to come from the deeply despised, abhorred by the nations, the slave of rulers. That is, the most oppressed and the most marginalized among us. So we might ask, who are those folk today? Maybe it's Black Lives Matter and Standing Rock Women and Familia Transqueer Liberation and the National Domestic Workers Alliance. Maybe it's the Dreamers and Ferguson Uprising activists and every person who's undocumented who's fighting their deportation. Pay attention, the prophet says. Pay attention to where the resistance is coming from. As white folk in particular, especially if we're middle or upper class, cisgender, citizen, straight, and able-bodied, we need to pay attention to this. Now we can complexify this with other aspects of our identities. Maybe you're a woman and queer like me, 
maybe you're working class or have a disability, this means whiteness impacts us differently. And we still have to wrestle with what it means to be white and how whiteness gets centered in everything. So stay with me here, okay? Stay with me here in whiteness for just a minute. Because the resistance is coming. The resistance is coming up from the most marginalized. And as white folks, that's not us. That does not mean there is not a role for us, not at all. What it does mean is that we need to not center ourselves. We need to be accountable in our work to those most impacted by oppression and follow their lead. Now this is an odd position to find ourselves in as white Christians, I know. And so this is the second resistance lesson. We are used to understanding ourselves as white Christians, as being the ones with the light, being the center. But this text tells us we are not. We're the nations, the rulers. Maybe not the political rulers always, but in our churches and church institutions, for example, how many of us sit on boards and committees that make the rules for everyone else? Can we, as preachers who are white, proclaim that we are not the center of this story? Can we sit in the awkward discomfort of that just for a moment? What would happen if we do? Listen, it's very clear that this salvation, this restoration, this healing, this deliverance from oppression is for everyone, the people of Israel and all the nations. We might say when Israel gets free, then everyone gets free. So here's the thing. Resistance is coming. Resistance is here. We as white folk are not the center of it and Do we know that giving up that power, that power to be always at the center, our comfort and convenience always at the center, do we know that giving up that power is part of dismantling white supremacy even within ourselves? That's our act of resistance right there. And that's the good news too, right? That salvation is coming for us. So let's shift now to John's Gospel. Again, the lectionary has been and will continue to be drawing on Matthew's narrative during the Epiphany season, so I'm intrigued why this story from John is interrupting that. Last week was Matthew's version of Jesus' baptism. It's almost as if the lectionary editors wondered, well, what happens next? What's fascinating to me is comparing what happens next with the other three Gospels. In Mark, Jesus is baptized and is immediately driven out into the wilderness for 40 days. In Luke, Jesus is baptized and we get a rather lengthy genealogy because he wants to be thorough, I guess. And then Jesus is led into the wilderness for 40 days and tempted by the devil. In Matthew, we've already had our genealogies, so Jesus is baptized and then led into the wilderness and tempted by the devil, this time for 40 days and 40 nights because Matthew has to one-up Luke and Mark, I guess. So John, well, it's not even clear if Jesus gets baptized, actually. John is such an interesting storyteller, isn't he? He doesn't much seem to care about the other three Gospels and their order of things and has a deep suspicion of what were becoming sacramental practices, like baptism and Eucharist. 
So it's not clear at all that Jesus is baptized. John just reports he saw a dove descend over him with some heavenly words. And then Jesus just kind of hangs out around the Jordan. There's no urgent driven out into the wilderness story here where Jesus is all by himself. No, they're all just hanging around together, the people. Finally, John says, well, there he is again. And two people start following Jesus around until he asks, what are you seeking? Now, here's my favorite part. The two people ask, where are you staying? And Jesus replies, come and see. So they go and see and stay with him. And somehow in the going and seeing and staying, they decide he's the Messiah. So two things here. Number one, well, now you're going to get to see me in all my Bible nerd glory, really. So the verb in verse 38 translated in the NRSV as staying is the Greek verb meno and is used again in verse 39. They came and saw where he was staying, meno, and remained, also meno. In fact, meno is used five times in this chapter and 40 times altogether in the Gospel of John. From what I can tell, it's used in John more than any other biblical book. Its usage is most dense in the long monologue Jesus has in chapters 14 through 17, where it's used 14 times, often translated as the NRSV, as abide, as in 15.4, abide in me as I abide in you, and 15.10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. So meno seems to be an important word for John, but why does this matter? Meno means to stay, to remain, to abide, to dwell. Early in chapter 1, John tells us that the word became flesh and lived among us, a different word, a different verb, but that also means dwell, or literally to pitch a tent. Where are you staying, Jesus? Where do you dwell? Where do you abide? Where is this tent of yours? It's almost as if they're asking, who are you? And Jesus says, come and see. And it's a verb of seeing, not just with the eyes, but with experience, with witness, with having to move your body and put it somewhere else, perhaps even somewhere new. Come and experience it for yourself. So the second thing, come and see. And so the gospel unfolds as we too are drawn in by the invitation to come and see for ourselves where Jesus abides. Come and see this Jesus who creates abundance where there has been none, so that all may eat their fill. Come and see this Jesus who reclaims the temple as a place for worship, not for profit. Come and see this Jesus who talks to women he is surely not supposed to, and empowers them to preach the gospel message. Come and see this Jesus who heals all, no matter their poverty or their documentation status. Come and see this Jesus who refuses to condemn those society condemns. Come and see this Jesus who weeps because of human suffering. Come and see this Jesus who washes the feet of his friends and his enemies. 
Come and see this Jesus who embodies the love of God among us. Come and see this Jesus who prays fervently that his friends will do the same, will embody love just like he did. Come and see this Jesus who, even after his death, encourages and strengthens a broken and frightened community. Come and see. Come and see this Jesus, love made flesh, this Jesus who is a walking act of resistance against the violent and corrupt movers and shakers of the empire. No, this Jesus embodies the values of a different kind of community, the beloved community of God. This is the Jesus who is justice, who is love, who is kindness, who is compassion. This is where Jesus stays. So this is our resistance lesson from John. Pay attention to where Jesus stays, where Jesus abides. It is not at the heart of the empire and its death-dealing institutions. And if you're not sure where he is, come and see for yourself out on the edges. Even to look back to Isaiah, among the people, rising up in resistance. Thanks be to God who is ever faithful, who draws us up out of despair, who puts a new song in our mouth, who strengthens us even to the end. Amen. So we'll finish up today with our call to action, our opportunity to embody resistance like the community in Isaiah, and like Jesus and his disciples in John. So on the 15th, we will come to our pulpits knowing the next day is the Martin Luther King Jr. holiday, a complicated beginning to Inauguration Week this year. Many of us will want to speak to MLK's vision of beloved community, and we should. We need all our ancestors around us right now. In that spirit, Black Lives Matter is calling for a National Week of Action to Reclaim MLK. That's the hashtag, Reclaim MLK. To reclaim the revolutionary legacy he left us. Black Lives Matter is calling for daily actions this week in solidarity with immigrants, blacks and other people of color, indigenous, Jewish, Muslim, and Arab folks, for the earth, for reproductive justice, for workers' rights, for all who are already being targeted by the incoming administration. So my first call to action for you is this, to take action. Join something already happening. There are many possibilities this week, so many. And we can help you if you don't know where to start. Drop me a note on our SoundCloud page if you need some help to get started. Second, my second call to action to you, particularly as preachers, If you're planning on lifting up MLK in your sermon or your service this Sunday, then reclaim his revolutionary legacy. Institutional whiteness has tried to rob MLK of his power, turning him into a respectable icon of service, not revolution. So let's ask, like the disciples do in John, where did you stay, Brother Martin? Where did you pitch your tent? This will remind us that MLK was not considered respectable 
or peaceful. He was targeted, bombed, stabbed, surveilled, jailed, beaten, and murdered for what he preached and embodied. So resist the now dominant narrative in power that he was just a dreamer and remind us that he asked hard things of all of us. Quote from his Beyond Vietnam speech or the letter from the Birmingham jail and let those interrogate us as white folk. And then out of that, let's make a commitment to action in his name, both to dismantle and to build. And remember, remember Jesus hanging out by the River Jordan, by that Freedom River? He's not alone. He has community there. He's hanging out with his people. So likewise, Martin Luther King had Ella Baker and Fannie Lou Hamer and Vincent Harding and Ann Braden and Amelia Boynton and so many others. He was not alone. Lift those folks up, too. He was not alone, Jesus was not alone, and neither are we. Because we testify and proclaim that in the midst of oppression, God raises up resistance, a people's movement ever towards freedom, ever towards love, ever towards healing, ever towards wholeness. Thanks be to God. So that's your call to action this week, to reclaim MLK in the spirit of Isaiah and the spirit of, of Jesus in the Gospel of John. And I just want to thank you for joining me today. I hope you'll come back next time. So we'll be looking at the text for January 29th, posting up during the week of January 24th. For right now, we're going to be doing these podcasts every other week until we kind of get a rhythm going and, and then hopefully shifting to a weekly version to, to help us out week by week as we move through these times together. You can find out more about Surge at showingupforracialjustice.org and our podcast lives at SoundCloud. Just search on The Word is Resistance. And you can interact with me there if you have questions or need help for, for action ideas. And the transcript for the podcast will be available as well on our website. Again, that's showingupforracialjustice.org. Blessings to you in all that you do to resist injustice and in all that you do to build up a new world. Love and liberation, beloveds. Love and liberation. Until next time, I'm Reverend Ann Dunlap. Thanks so much. Thank you.